My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Kanahus Manuel. On August 4, 2014, a tailings pond burst at the Mount Polly Copper and Gold Mine owned by Imperial Metals. The mine lies in the interior of what is currently known as British Columbia in the territory of the Sohuatmuk Nation. The pond covered more than four square kilometers and more than 25 million cubic meters of mine waste and contaminated water flooded into the surrounding watershed. It has been called one of the worst environmental disasters in modern Canadian history, and it is also an example of colonialism in its most toxic form. The land in which the mine sits, like most of British Columbia, was never surrendered and never covered by any treaty with the Crown. And the mine's presence has never been sanctioned by the nation whose territory it despoils. Kanuhus Manuel is a member of the Suhuatmuk Nation and a community organizer. She has been at the center of the grassroots response to the spill, a response that is not only demanding answers, a clean-up, and some measure of responsibility from the company and the provincial government who imposed this violence on her people and the land, but one that is all about asserting and strengthening nationhood. And beyond even that, it is about strengthening the links across the many struggles currently hot and active in so-called British Columbia between indigenous nations defending their land and resource extraction companies backed by the settler state. It is, as Manuel notes, a revolutionary time for indigenous nations in the northwest of Turtle Island. We spoke by Skype to phone. Greetings, everyone. My name is Kanahuspashi Manuel. I'm from the Nation in so-called British Columbia, Canada. I'm one of the women that helped erect the encampment and sacred fire at the entrance to the Imperial Metals Mount Polly mine site shortly after the spill that happened on August 4, 2014, which was the biggest environmental mining disaster in our whole history of our people. Our territory is very vast, one of the largest indigenous nations in so-called British Columbia. We come from areas that have high alpine glacier mountains, lots of fresh water, creeks and streams, and lakes. We hold the world's largest sockeye salmon spawning ground, and our people continue to live off the land, moose meat, deer, caribou, elk, fishing salmon, and trout. And a lot of indigenous peoples within our nation completely depend on indigenous foods for their survival. So this area around the Mount Polly mine disaster, the place name is called Yuchnesenchaimetkwa. And when we use our traditional place names, it really explains the terrain and the significance, like spiritual significance and cultural significance around that place. So Yucht, from the Yuchnesenchaimetkwa, Yucht means the birthing ground. It means when a woman's in labor and her water breaks, that's Yucht. 
and it's also where the salmon go and spawn and lay their eggs. And Senechai Metkwa is the bigger, better than great of all the great lakes. This area and this lake that was directly impacted by the disaster and the mining waste spill is Quinell Lake. There is a bunch of different lakes, but Quinell Lake is very significant in that it's the world's deepest glacier-fed lake. And when I go into explaining more about what happened and what waterways were impacted, we'll know that this is connected to the Fraser River watershed. They come from a really strong community in Nisqalmas within the Sogotwag Nation. And it's the home to some really strong fighters, like from the 70s, like my grandfather, George Manuel, who traveled the world and across Canada uniting Indigenous peoples on these issues of Aboriginal title and rights, unceded and surrendered lands, and reclaiming and rebuilding our nationhood again. And so we come from a long line of fighters within the Skalmas, and we've been battling against the pipeline companies and the mining companies for many, many, many years now. It was in 2004 that our hunters came across the Imperial Metals Rudot Creek Mine, which is at the headwaters of the Adams River, the big Adams River salmon run. And right at the head of the water at the glaciers is where they chose to put this underground mine exploring for lead and zinc. So our people had many clashes with Imperial Metals prior to the spill. And it was actually one and a half months before the actual Mount Polly disaster that Imperial Metals sent their representatives to the community of Nisqalas to try to convince and actually try to receive consent to porch through with this project. But it was the Sohatmuk women and the youth and the children that actually kicked them right out of the community and it inspired a lot of people like through communications and social networking. A lot of people had saw that in our community and were very awakened to the fact that Imperial Metals is in our headwaters. This is prior to the spill. When the disaster happened on August 4th, it just sent major alarms around to the community. And as a community, we knew that we needed to do something. But see, our Sohotmuk territory, it's a vast area. It takes around three and a half hours to drive right from the community of Nisqalmas up to Yuxnaysanakaimekwa to the Mount Pauli mine site. We knew as a community that we needed to go there. And when we went there and we lit our sacred fire at the entrance to the Mount Pauli mine site, which was a very, very, very beautiful act in that our people were lighting a sacred fire to bring the people together to get the answers in the direction that needed to be taken because it was such a big catastrophe. Nothing like this has ever happened before. And it really depends on how we handle this disaster in that this is how all mining and pipeline and tanker disasters are going to be handled. And so upon lighting that fire, we had many, many people be drawn to that fire. A lot of likely residents Uh, And just a a quick clarification for listeners, likely is a town that's near the Mount Polly mine site. Had come and local Sohotmo come to the fire and saying that there's no other place for them to air their grievances, to say how they felt, because a lot of it was trauma. People didn't know how it's going to affect the salmon. People didn't know how it was going to affect their real estate and their businesses and stuff in the area. No one knew There was no government or Imperial Metals representatives that were answering the questions that the people had. 
And so it became an epicenter for people to come with their skills and knowledge of people who wanted to help to the people that just wanted to cry and just, you know, connect to that fire. So it was like a big thing to be there. And we're like glad that everybody came in such big mass after the disaster. After being at the Youthness and Chaimetkoi camp, for, we were there for 14 days, and in those 14 days, it was packed full of people coming and going out of the camp, giving their testimonies of either working right inside Mount Pauli Mine, the local residents, local tour guide operators, and we had scientists, and so much different people that came. But one thing that was really useful was talking to the workers and talking to the ex-workers of the Mount Pauli Mine, because they were starting to expose what was really happening behind those closed doors and behind those security gates inside the Mount Pauli disaster. We heard testimonies that gave accounts that the spill was coming over in May. We had accounts that, and it was even verified through the Imperial Metals workers at one of the local meetings that they were having weekly after the spill, where they admitted that human medical waste and human solid waste from the greater Vancouver area were being hauled in and dumped into the tailings impoundment area as well. So when all of those thousands of tons of mercury and lead and selenium and all the processing chemicals and copper and all of those things that were very detrimental to our water source and our land, when those all emptied out of the tailings impoundment area on August 4th, it impacted a whole watershed. It impacted Polly Lake that went into Hazeltine Creek, that went into Quinell Lake and Quinell River and then into the Fraser River. It's important to note that the Fraser River is a water source for 62% of the province of British Columbia. So that's how much it's impacted. When we were there at the disaster site, we were able to talk to some Japanese doctors that were over in Grassy Narrows, Ontario, doing more human hair and blood sample testing because of the mercury poisoning that the Indigenous people are being impacted by there. So those experts in the Minamoto disease, the mercury poisoning, just happened to be in Canada, so we were able to talk to them about it. And they said, no, don't drink the water for at least 100 kilometers. It's very important that people don't drink the water. Yet the province of British Columbia lifted the water ban and told the people it was all right to drink. So things like this were being exposed by just being at the encampment and putting out daily posts so that people could stay monitored on it. What we're talking about is not only this disaster, but also rebuilding a nationhood. And as a nation that has been colonized, but has never ceded or surrendered our lands to them, we, as a nation, stood up after this Mount Pauli disaster to say, okay, well, who's going to actually start doing the monitoring of our territory? Real monitoring, not just monitoring like the Ministry Minister of Environment, monitors mines, which is very rarely, after all the cutbacks that the province was making, they had two visits in the last, like, two years. So they weren't even visiting and monitoring these mine sites, even though they gave them Imperial Metals five warnings that it needed to reconstruct and reinforce its tailings and poundment dam, but they were unchecked and unmonitored. And so it's not just Imperial Metals that's a culprit here. 
the province of British Columbia is allowing this and actually making a business off of drawing in international investors and investors from around the world and making it super easy for companies to establish a mining company here in Canada that are going in all over the world. They're going into Mexico and going into all different areas, Guatemala, going into everywhere Canadian mining companies are going and they're impacting just the same way. And Indigenous peoples are always the first to be impacted by any type of disaster that impacts the land because it's the Indigenous people that still depend on the land for our survival, for continuing on our culture and our way of life and our existence. We need a land base. But with bombardment of mining projects like this that go unchecked, we are being left with less and less clean water and clean land to continue to exist on. So after we set up the encampment, we were there for 14 days. But we came out and we ended up calling on a big feast. And we had indigenous nations from all the surrounding communities come and hand drum and take part in the ceremony and a big feast to bring the people to the actual site to say, hey, well, how are we as indigenous peoples going to be dealing with issues such as mining? At that feast, we released a 17-page report, and it was the People's Impact Assessment Report. So, yeah, the province has their impact assessment. The mining company has theirs. Well, this is the people. And it talked about everything from the water, the issues of how copper and elevated levels of copper affect the salmon navigation. It talks from experts, from wild salmon advocates and biologists, even talking about the spiritual impacts, the trauma when you're dealing with something like such a sacredness like salmon that's sacred to all the people all along the Fraser River. How does that impact the people emotionally and psychologically and culturally? Things that the province would never look at. So we brought all of those things into this report. And now Mount Polly is just barely trying to come out with a report and getting people's testimonies. That's how slow they are. And they really, after talking to many mining experts, said that they didn't know what to do. That's why they acted so slow. They didn't know how to handle, and they never plan and prepare for a disaster like that to happen. So after being at the encampment for 14 days, the elders had requested us to bring the message back to the community. So we say that we never left the encampment. We never let the fire go out, that the fire is spread, and it's spread up to the Red Chris Mine. It's spread up to the Burnaby Mountain blockade against the Kinder Morgan. And people are lighting like sacred fires and there are the ceremony, there are the spiritual part that's connecting all of these struggles across the province. There's the Unistotum camp, there's the Mari Lee camp. There's all these blockades that are going because the native people have been pushed, 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 pushed off the land. Residential schools, reservation systems, colonizations, invasions onto our land. And we're backed up into the corners. So we have no other choice. We have no other choice for our children. It's just like you're back a mother bear into the corner. She's going to attack and protect her children. And that's the fierceness and that's the dedication that you see with Indigenous peoples now, is that we have no other choice than to fight back. What other things have you and your community been doing in the last couple of months, say, what we've been doing is going around and talking to the different impacted communities that are fighting on these same issues of protection of our water and our watershed area. 
our allies and our relatives of the Taltan Nation north of us, they established a blockade four days after the disaster happened at the Red Chris mine site, which is also Imperial Metals Mining Company. And they established that blockade for 14 days. Then they reestablished it again after they had invited us up to give the truth about Mount Polly and the mine disaster. We brought videos that we had made that we compiled from the encampment to photos and testimonies up there to the Taltan people. Their community gym was packed. It was packed because people were concerned that they didn't want a Mount Polly in their territory. It was the day after the presentation that the elders, the Kripana keepers, had stated that they were going to erect the blockade because they knew that they could not afford to have a Mount Polly going into their water, 18 kilometers from their current-day village of Iskut. So uh, from being there as they lit that sacred fire on the entrance to the Red Crisp Mine Road, an injunction was sought. An attempt, they were seeking a permanent one, but they got a temporary injunction. And I'm one of the named defendants on that injunction against the blockaders of the Red Crisp Mine site. And so we have to all look back to Mount Pauly because this is the way that they want to deal with mining. And this is how they want to continue to just allow mining to come into our territories unchecked. So Mount Pauly, yeah, it's a, it's a symbol. It's a symbol for not only like the people of so-called British Columbia, but all across Canada. In our nations as Indigenous peoples, it's really important part of our way to counsel with people, to actually see people face-to-face. There's many different things, social networking. We've been utilizing that a lot, but it's always going to the communities and uniting with other struggles and resistance against imperialism and capitalism. So we've been working with filmmakers. We've been putting films out. We've been continuing to put a daily update up. We're still continuing to work with the likely residents and helping to give different legal options. We're trying to organize right now for some organizations in the Lower Mainland and the Vancouver area to go help assist in some of the organizing and things that they have to do and likely to continue to fight as the residents of likely, which they're getting the worst end of it because they don't have no clean water and they still don't have no clean water today. So I know that the province is going very, very slow after talking to many scientists and working with an independent panel of experts and continuing to talk to them about everything. They said that really the testing is really a slow process and we're not going to really see any of the effects for years and years and years to come because mercury and heavy metals like that make their way into the food web and to the surrounding plants and animals and back into the water and, you know, bears and all of this that depend on the salmon are impacted and it's accumulated in the bodies of the animals that we eat, the fish that we eat, and it doesn't dissolve. So if a woman eats all of this fish and it's full of mercury and it gets passed through the placenta to the baby, that baby be born, that baby have another baby, and that mercury doesn't ever dissolve. It just continues to stay in the bloodstream. So it has the potential to impact generations of people that depend on a large salmon sustenance. 
And when you've been going and, and meeting with people in the other affected communities, what kinds of things have people been saying? What kind of things are they worried about? What kinds of things are happening as a result of this bill? Because there's so much happening. There's so much happening because like right now is a very revolutionary time in Indigenous communities. We have the recent Chilcotin decision. And that was a recent Supreme Court of Canada decision. That recognizes an Aboriginal title actually on the ground, real. And it's something that we've always known. Like, we've always known we've never ceded or surrendered our territories, Britain, Canada, or British Columbia. And there has never been no treaty or no purchase. So Indigenous people are at the verge of rebuilding mighty nations again and making decisions on ourselves. So upon talking to these communities and bringing issues like this out, it's all about who's going to be making the final decisions. Who are the decision makers and who are the rights title holders to be making decisions on our territories? And that's the people, and that comes with the elders, the women, the hunters, the berry pickers, the fishermen, the basket makers. All the people that depend on the land are the ones that get to make the final choice. And it's how do we build that power up so we have the jurisdiction to be making these decisions, not the province of British Columbia, not the Minister of Environment, the Sukhwatmuk people, and the Sukhwatmuk people have a history of standing and fighting back. They're not scared to. Our elders are telling everybody, now is not the time to be scared, to show no fear and take courage in fighting these big mining companies and not being bullied and pushed around anymore. So that's the whole energy and that's what's coming out of all these big discussions with Indigenous peoples, the whole revival of who we are as nations. Draw out a little bit more for the listeners the ways in which the form of your community's response to the disaster is very much organized around rebuilding nationhood. It came about through having some nation meetings Sukhwatmuk gathering is a yearly gathering of Sukhwatmuk people that come together for many different reasons, but we had some very important discussions at the last Sukhwatmuk gathering where there's hundreds and hundreds of Sukhwatmuk that had come together during that weekend. And during these discussions, what took place is the ancient, ancient way that we handle discussing land issues and business and territorial boundaries and issues of Aboriginal title and rights and issues of independence and autonomy and sovereignty. These are discussions that were talked about till way early in the morning, three, four in the morning on some of the days. This is a traditional way that we counsel. As we listen, we hear what the people have to say, and we come and we make important decisions. And that was one of the important decisions that were made, is that we had to send people on the ground to get first-hand account of what really is happening, because we could hear what we can hear on the media, we could hear it, you know, on social networking media, like we could hear it everywhere else from the province, from the chief and council system, but it's never the truth. It's never the exact truth, because everyone's trying to cover their butt some way or another, the province, Imperial Medals. You know, these are the things that we are very aware of. So that's exercising our nationhood being able to send our runners or delegations to be able to monitor, to be able to bring the message back to the people, which is a very, very important role in our society, our runners. 
what would you call on people in the rest of Canada to do if they want to act in support, act in solidarity? There's many things that people could do to support. Like, there's the obvious things of just getting the message out, leafletting, pamphleting. People could contact imperialnomore at gmail.com, which is a direct way to get in touch with organizers and say exactly what skills you have to offer. And we could see how that could help within this bigger fight against not just imperial metals, but also the pipeline issue. Also, the revitalization of our culture and our ways. We work on many different projects because it's all intertwined and there's always fundraising. People could do fundraising for the people on the ground. There's going to be many different actions that are going to be coming up against both the mining and pipelines. And yeah, donating money is like a big thing. There's the court case against the Talpan that's coming up that's going to require a lot of resources. So there's many different ways to help. The best way to get in contact is through imperialnomore at gmail.com. There's going to be more action being taken against these companies and people just need to stay posted and aware of everything and not have to wait for people to tell them how they can help because we all drink this water and we all need it to survive, and whatever people can do in their own means to continue to raise awareness and consciousness amongst people, that industry is impacting our territories and our water that we cannot turn back. We can never make it clean again. So um, those are some ways that everyone can continue to help. And what about you? What do you think your role is going to be in the next while? Well, this is this is my life. I was raised in this, so I continue to work on a daily basis on uniting people, not just for this fight against imperial metals. This is involved in a much bigger fight, too, for Indigenous liberation and autonomy within our nations in BC. And so we're working on many different levels and networking with many different movements to make our movement stronger and to build our movement is not just isolated within the Sukhothmug nation, but throughout the world. And those alliances continue to be built. And also the pipeline issue that's connecting so much Indigenous peoples and Mount Pauly has to be really addressed on those issues too because it shows the lack that the province has for any type of significant, meaningful cleanup. And so working with all the activists in Burnaby Mountain and people on the ground at Unistotin, Mari Lee Camp and fighting these pipelines are all interconnected. We can't just separate it and draw a box around imperial medals and say this is a fight. No, it's a part of a bigger, bigger fight that's happening right now. You have been listening to my interview with Kanahus Manuel of the Suhuatmuch Nation. We have been talking about the grassroots struggle in the aftermath of the disastrous spill at Imperial Metals Mount Pauly Mine and the larger struggle in defense of the land and nationhood of which that is one part. For more information about this struggle, you can find links on this episode's page at rabble.ca or talkingradical.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 